The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church. We're going to begin this morning a two-part look at a very controversial section of Scripture. John 10, 31 through 39. All right, as I said, we're going to spend this week and next week trying to unravel this text. And you're going to need to put on your thinking caps. All right, because we're going to get a little into this text and try to figure out what's going on here. Now, we ended our study last week in John 10 with Yeshua's words in verse 31. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, one is neuter here in the Greek. It's not masculine, indicating that Yeshua and His Father are not one person, but they are one in essence. Yeshua is one substance with the Father as far as divine essence or nature is concerned. Yeshua and the Father are ontologically inseparable. Now, I want you to notice the Jews' reaction to this. They got what He was saying. So, you know, Again, this text is complicated, so you got to pay attention to what's going on here. All right, he says this, and then they pick up stones to stone him. That kind of gives me the idea they didn't like what he said, right? Okay? They've had enough, they're sick of this, and so they get mad, and they're going to stone him. So he responds, Yeshua answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So he's saying, you know, which, which good work do you want to stone me for? Which one? See, he is seeking clarification here. All right, hold on just before you stone me. What work are you stoning me for? I want to make sure we're on the same page here. So the Jews tell him exactly why they want him dead. In verse 33, the Jews answered him, for good work, we're not stoning you, but for blasphemy. All right, we're going to kill you because of blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, you've got to make sure you get the reason here they're stoning him. They're saying, you're a man, but you're saying you're God. So why do they want him dead? Because they view him as a man, nothing more. But he's saying to them that he's God. You've got to see that. Do you see that in that text? Do you understand? Do it like this. Or do it like this. <laughs> okay. You've got to understand. That's why they want him dead. Because they just you're just a man, but you're saying that you're God. So to this, Yeshua responds with a text from the Psalms that demonstrates it's okay for him to say that he's God. And the text that he quotes is from Psalm 82, and it's verse 6, Yeshua answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. Now, in order to defend his deity... He quotes verse 6. Has it not been said in your lies, say you are God's? So whatever interpretation you come up with of this quotation, it has to reinforce Yeshua's claim to deity. That's the issue here. So that's why he pulls out verse 6. He's trying to reinforce the fact that he equates himself with God. See, Yeshua is superior to all divine beings. You, got, you know what I mean by that. There's other divine beings. There must be if He's superior to them, right? If, and what He is doing here in verse 6, He's saying, listen, if other divine beings can be addressed as gods, and that's how they're being addressed in this text. They're being addressed by God, by Yahweh as gods. How much more appropriate is the application to me? Because I'm higher than all these other gods. So you've got to get that. That's what's happening in this text. 
Now, if we interpret Psalm 82 incorrectly, we're going to miss his point. So I want to look at Psalm 82 this morning, and then next week we'll get into John 10. But he's quoting from Psalm 82, so we've got to understand Psalm 82 if we want to rightly understand what he's saying. Psalm 82, verse 1 says, The Psalm of Asaph, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Now listen to me. The predominant view on this psalm is that it's about Yahweh judging Israel's leaders. That view is way off. And I'm going to prove that to you this morning. The first thing I want you to understand here, though, is that the reason I believe this is a faulty view is because it comes from a bad translation. And that's what you're looking at right there, a bad translation. New American Standard Bible. It obscures the meaning of this verse. You look at it and you read it in this verse and you're like, okay, he judges in the midst of the ruler. What rulers is God judging in the midst of? Well, the word God here and the word rulers are both from the Hebrew word Elohim. So, okay, you got the same exact word. Why do we translate? What made them want to translate this rulers? Theological bias. That's what made him translate this rulers. We don't, why? It's God. Just put it in there. Well, we want to help you people out because you're not too smart. And so we want to help you understand what he's talking about here. So we're going to translate Elohim as rulers. Let's look at Young's, I always want to say living, literal translation. Young's and living, they'll go together, don't they, with the essential oils? <laughs> yeah. So if I say that wrong, somebody raise your hand and correct me, okay? Look, at, look how Young's translates this, alright? God has stood in the company of God. In the midst of God does judge. Okay? You notice the first thing that here that God is in there three times in that verse where it's the New American Standard. It's only in there once. So, where the American Standard takes out one of the gods, Young's adds one of them. But I understand why Young's does it. It makes sense, alright? The Hebrew Elohim is twice in that verse. And Young's adds the additional God in company of God, which is the Hebrew word Adah. And it means a stated assembly. It's translated congregation in the other one. Okay, that's Adah. It's a stated assembly, specifically a concourse or generally a family. And so he sees that it's in the company of God. That's what the congregation is. That's what the divine council is. So he makes that clear by adding it, even though there's not a third Elohim in that text. Let's look at the ESV. A Psalm of Asaph, God has taken His place in the divine council. That's Adah, divine council. And Young's translated as company of God. The term Adah is normally translated congregation, so Elohim has taken his place in the congregation of Elohim. That makes sense. The term divine council is used by Hebrew Bible scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. Now, the New American Standard Bible says rulers. He judges in the midst of the rulers. The ESV says he judges in the midst of the gods. Now, which is it? I I really can't understand why the New American Standard translates Elohim as rulers. Other than a bias. They have a preconceived notion. They don't believe there's other gods, so we're not going to put gods in there. And they do that many places. They translate Elohim as God in the first part of the verse, but in the second part it doesn't mean God anymore. Now it means rulers. And by that they're, they're imitating or insinuating human rulers. Alright, let me say a word here about the ESV. In my opinion, it's the best translation that is out right now. And here's why I think that. The starting point for the ESV translation was the 1971 edition of the Revised Standard Version. Each word of the text 
was checked against and based on the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible. Now, the publisher, Crossway, who does ESV, states this, In exceptionally difficult cases, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, the Samaritan Pentateuch, and the Syriac Peshitta, the Latin Vulgate, and other sources were consulted to shed possible light on the text, or if necessary, to support a divergence from the Masoretic text. In other words, they're using a lot of other sources that are available to us, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, to make a translation as accurate as they can. And I think that's important, because you want to know what the text says, not what the interpreters think it means. The ESV is what is called a formal equivalent translation. In other words, it's a word-for-word translation which attempts to translate the Bible as literally as possible, keeping the sentence structure and idioms intact if possible. Now, Young's is a literal translation, but Young's doesn't, you know, just translates it from Hebrew to English, and so you get the sentence, and you're like, you're reading it, you're not really sure what it's saying sometimes, okay? Because it's so literal. Well, is the ESV, they try to put it in a, you know, they rearrange the words more or less, so it flows in English, but they're using the exact word. So translations are important, people. So don't just use one. Make comparison. And Young's is good to have as a backup to go to, to look at. You know, when you get a verse and you read it and you say, that's confusing. Grab another translation. It might be made very clear just by doing that. So ESV does a good job, you know, in translating, and I'm probably going to make the switch. It's hard because I've been New American Standard for so long, but, you know, I just want to use what I think is the most accurate one out there, all right? So he says here, God has taken His place in the divine council. And most people are like, what is that? Well, as Young says, in the midst of the gods. That's a, I think it's a good translation, even though Elohim is not there. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Now listen, the divine council, which has kind of been hidden in the Bible by translations like that, is made up of Yahweh and other gods. Now who are these other gods and where do they come from? Well, Yahweh existed from all eternity, Yahweh being the divine trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But at a point in time, Yahweh created other gods, lesser gods. He created divine beings to be part of his family, to talk to, to hold counsel with. It's his divine counsel. And Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, is said to have created everything that exists, that includes other gods. Look at Colossians 1.16. By him, that's referring to Christ, all things were created both in heavens and on earth. So in the heavens, that would be the other gods, and on earth, people, visible and invisible. Okay? You can't see these gods. They're invisible. Alright? Because they're in the divine realm. Or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Now these terms here, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, they refer to spirit beings, not human governments. I believe the human government is a mere reflection of the divine realm and what takes place there. This, there's a hierarchy of spiritual beings. Now these gods were created before Yahweh created the world and before He created mankind. We see that in the book of Job 38. God is questioning Job here. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Isn't that cool? God uses sarcasm. I mean, that's biblical. Look at that. He's he's taking Job to test. Well, you know, Job, tell me. Who stretched the line on it? Or where were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstones? Now watch this. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When God created the world, the morning stars and the sons of God, these are names of divine beings. They're members of the council. They shouted for joy at creation. So before the creation of the earth and man, you have Yahweh and you have other deities, lesser created beings that made up the divine council. And this council is meeting in the heavens. This is not an earthly 
you know, my, many people want to make these gut men, all right, and like they're men, they're made on, on earth. No, but the, if you go to Psalm 89, it says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Where's this assembly taking place? For who in the skies can be compared to you, O Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around Him. Here we have an assembly of holy ones that meets in the sky. Heavenly beings here is B'nai El. El means God. Sons of God. And then we have a council of holy ones. So in the Hebrew Bible, when you get a good translation, we see a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as the head of the council, the supreme monarch, and various supernatural attendants that carry out His will. Let's look at a council meeting. Let's sit in on a council meeting and watch what happens. Alright, this text in 1 Kings, Ahab wants to go to war. So he goes to his prophets and he says, hey, I want to go to war. What do you think? They said, yeah, go ahead. You will be victorious. Well, let's get another opinion. How about uh, Micaiah? Let's get him in here, Micaiah. And he will give us Yahweh's view. Let's see what Yahweh has to say about this, alright? So Micaiah said, they ask him and you know, first he doesn't give them what they want. He says, I want you to tell me the truth. Oh, you really want the truth? Okay, here's the truth here. Here's why your prophets are telling you this. He goes, he said, therefore hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. This is a throne room scene. And Micaiah is involved in it. And all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. So here's Yahweh. He's on his throne. And the hosts of heaven are standing by him. Who are these hosts of heaven? In the Hebrew, it's Savah Hashimayim. And it, they're standing here before Yahweh. The hosts of heaven are, is a reference to divine beings. You know, we read hosts of heaven and we think, well, that means the stars and stuff. This is a throne room scene with Yahweh and his council. And we can see what's going on. See, the prophets had insight into this because God would call the prophets into the throne room to give them insight. These hosts of heaven are divine beings. Let me show you a couple scriptures and we'll come back to Kings here that show you that. Nehemiah 9.6 You alone are Yahweh. There's other Elohim, but there's no other Yahweh. Alright? You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. So, Yahweh created these hosts. The earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. These are divine beings, and they're worshiping Yahweh. Clearly, it refers to created beings that reside in the heavens, and they're worshiping God. Psalm 29, 1 and 2, a psalm of David, Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings... So here's some more heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due His name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Heavenly beings here again. B'nai El. Sons of God. They're called upon to worship Yahweh. In Psalm 97, it tells us that Yahweh is exalted above all gods. For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. If there are no other gods, what is this verse saying? Yahweh, you're far above things that don't exist. Wow, that's a powerful statement for Yahweh, isn't it? Yahweh, you're, you're far above nothing. Because there is no God. That's ridiculous. Alright, let's go back to King. Alright? So, he's in the throne room scene. He sees Yahweh sitting on the throne. He sees all these hosts, these divine beings standing around him on the right and on his left. And Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? In other words, 
Yahweh's going to kill Ahab. So let's get him up to Ramoth Gilead, and he's going to die in a battle. And one said this, while another said that. So the heavenly hosts are talking here, and they say, how about this? How about we do this? And another one says, how about we do that? Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I'll entice him. And Yahweh said to him, how? And he said, I'll go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Now, if you read the text ahead of time, his prophets are telling him, go up, go up, you'll be victorious. You know, they're demonstrating, they're putting horns on their head and saying, you'll push them all back. Well, now we find out that they're saying this because they have a deceiving spirit from the pro- in the prophets to get him to go die. Then he said, Yahweh's talking here. Then Yahweh said, go entice him and you'll prevail. Go and do it. So this vision, Sima Micaiah, shows that Yahweh is in complete control of the events. He only approves the course of action that suits his purpose. And in this case, his purpose is to bring about the death of Ahab. So we see what's going on in the council, the talking that's going on here. Daniel also shows us that Yahweh's sovereignty is over all the hosts of heaven. In Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does, Yahweh, does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what are you doing? So the hosts of heaven are divine beings, but Yahweh's over them. He created them. He rules them. Now in our text in Psalm 82, we see that Yahweh is judging these created beings. We looked at verse 1. God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He's holding judgment. Now, the New American Standard Bibles, He judges in the midst of rulers, as I said, is a bad translation. The Hebrew word's Elohim. Now, let me talk for a minute about the word Elohim. This is important. Put this in your brain, write it down, do something, because I... If you can disprove what I'm saying here, I would like to see it. Okay? Because I think this is very important. Elohim is used 2,606 times in the New American Standard. Elohim is the plural of El, which comes from the root meaning might, strength, power. Elohim is plural, but it's what grammarians call a morphological plural. Hebrew nouns that end in I am are plural. But in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. And again, you know this from grammar. Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is singular or plural? Yeah, the grammar of the sentence. That's the only way we know. If I say I shot a deer, well, a deer, that would be singular, okay? Or if I see, I saw a whole bunch of deer. Okay, that's plural. Same word. In the very first use of Elohim in Genesis 1.1, the verb bara identifies the subject of the verb as masculine singular. So, in the beginning, Elohim, that's plural. And a lot of people want to make a big deal of this. Well, that's referring to the Trinity. No, it's really not. It's just Elohim is God. Alright? It's a plural word, but it's it, because of the context of the sentence, it's a masculine singular. Now, You may think of Elohim as just another name of Yahweh. But Elohim is used in Scripture for many others besides Yahweh. Yahweh is called Elohim 2,000 times. We know that Yahweh is called Elohim, but He's not the only one that's called Elohim. We see in Psalm 82 that there's members of Yahweh's divine council. They're called Elohim. Elohim is used of gods of foreign nations. For example, in 1 Kings 11.33, Because they have forsaken Me, Israel is always running away, and have worshipped Astaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in My ways, doing what is right in My sight, and observing My statutes and My ordinances, as their father David did. Now, God is here, and God are Elohim. Elohim is also used of demons. Deuteronomy 32.17 
They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom their fathers did not dread. Here God is Elohim and gods is Elohim. So demons are called Elohim. Here's one that kind of surprises most people. Samuel is called Elohim by the witch of Endor, 1 Samuel 28, 13. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. Divine being here is Elohim. Now, I believe every use of Elohim in the Tanakh is referring to divine beings, spiritual beings. Michael Heiser says Elohim is a place of residence locator. So if you see Elohim, that's someone, that's a being that lives in another realm. Elohim is only used of those in the spirit world. That's why it's used of Samuel here. He's no longer amongst us. He's in the spirit world now. He is a divine being. In Daniel chapter 2, the Chaldeans say this, The thing that the king asked is difficult. Remember what the king asked? The king didn't go to him and say, hey, will you interpret my dream for me? I mean, here's the dream. Tell me. No, the king says, tell me what the dream was and then interpret it. Holy macro. Okay. Well, king, we don't know what went on inside your head. He goes, then, well, we're going to kill you all then. Okay. And they said, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So the Elohim don't dwell with flesh. Well, how come Daniel could reveal it? Because Elohim, God, revealed it to Daniel. So hopefully, and you really have to see this, people, Elohim has a broad range of uses in the Scripture. It's not strictly referring to Yahweh. Yahweh is an Elohim, but there's other Elohim who are not Yahweh. Now, in attempting to find, and I've challenged, and I've said this many times, Show me a use in the Scripture where Elohim refers to someone other than God. Or a God, a divine being. And I've had people come to me and say, well, what about this verse? So let's look at some of these verses, okay? Exodus 4.16 Moreover, He shall speak for you to the people. It's referring to Moses. And He will be a mouth to you, and you will be as God to Him. See, there it's Elohim. And they say, it's talking about Moses. Moses is called Elohim. Is he? Is Moses called an Elohim in this verse? What does the verse say? You'll be like an Elohim to him. All right, let's go to Deuteronomy 18 18. God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. He's talking to Moses. And I'm going to put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Alright, he's going to put his words in Aaron's mouth and Aaron's going to speak. Now, biblically defined, a prophet is a mouthpiece of God. He's someone who speaks for God. Look at Exodus 7.1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So Moses, I'm going to make you like a God to Pharaoh. I'm not making you God. You're not an Elohim. Aaron was to speak for Moses, who was as a God to Pharaoh. Aaron was Moses' mouth. He spoke for Moses. So a prophet is someone who speaks for God. So he says, he'll be your mouth and you will be as God to him. Now, Aaron's like a prophet. Moses like a God. If Moses is an Elohim, then Aaron is a mouth. He's going to be like God to Pharaoh. It does not sing he's Elohim. And you just, that's just English, okay? Just understanding the text a little bit. Another verse that's used to question that Elohim is used to refer to somebody outside the spirit world is Exodus 27. And again, this is horrible, but this is a translation problem here, people. Now let's look at the text. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep from him, all right, I, I come over and I say, look, uh, I'm going on a trip. I don't want to leave my guns at home. Will you watch my guns for me? Will you hold on to this money while I'm gone? I don't, I don't want, you know, my house will be empty. I don't want any break, breaking and stealing my stuff. So okay, I, I let you hold it, all right? And it's stolen from your house 
while I'm gone. And if the thief is caught, the thief pays double. If the thief is not caught, then the owner, you, the person I left that stuff with, of the house shall appear before the judges. The word judges there is Elohim. To determine whether he laid his hands on his neighbor's property. Okay, I leave you my stuff. Someone steals it. So you come before the judges and the judges are going to determine if you stole. How are the judges going to do that? How are they going to determine whether you took that, whether something happened to it? Could God determine it? So, well, the word there is Elohim. Maybe we should just leave it like it is in the Hebrew and not translate it to judges. It just infuriates me why they would do this. It's translational bias. He's going to appear before the judges. Judges are not called Elohim. They're men to determine whether he laid hands on it. How are human judges going to determine who stole the money? The ESV translates this as, guess what? God. He shall appear before God to determine whether he's taken. Now, I think God can make that determination. There's no justification for translating Elohim as judges, none. All right, let's look at the next verse, verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for clothing, or any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. Again, judges here both times is Elohim. Now let's read it that way. If both parties shall come before Elohim, he whom Elohim condemns shall pay double. You say, how does God do that? Did they not have a way to discern God's will? Casting lots, doing other things. They found out. What's your will? When they wanted to add a new apostle, how'd they do it? Straw, straws. All right, let's see which one. Well, the faith, the faith Life Study Bible says this. The idea of God condemning the guilty party recalls another context where God's will was determined through casting lots. All right, that's how God makes that determination. Through the method of discerning God's will, as though the method of discerning God's will is not outlined here, God makes His will known during a decision-making process. Since the scenario here is very similar to the one that follows in verse 10, God's will may have been determined by an oath taken in the name of Yahweh on the presumption that God would reveal and condemn the one who took His name in vain. Now again, the ESV translates Elohim as God, not judges. He shall, in that case, both parties shall come before God. The one who God condemns shall pay double. The next verse makes it clear that Yahweh and not some human judges are what the text is dealing with. Verse 10 and 11. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or an animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before Yahweh shall be made by the two of them, that he has not laid hands, and Yahweh there, that's yod heh vav all right, this is Yahweh. It's making it clear that this text is about Yahweh and about Elohim, not about human judges. Lay his hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. An oath before Yahweh. So for them to take an oath is to come before Yahweh, Yahweh determined. So Elohim is not used of humans unless they're dead. Okay? And again, this is so important, and you'll understand hopefully next week, hopefully you understand now, but you'll understand next week why this is so important. All right? Elohim is used of those in the spirit world. It's a place of residence locator. All Elohim live in the spirit world. There is never a time in Scripture where man is called Elohim. That's important because it makes clear that Psalm 82 is talking about God's not about men. And, and, and the argument that Yeshua uses in John 10 reinforces this translation. We'll look at that next time. But, alright, we also have an example in early Judaism where people are using Psalm 82 
to talk about the judgment of God. Uh, you're familiar with Qumran, right? And the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found all these scrolls in there, and so they're looking at them. Well, there's a scroll called 11Q Melchizedek. And in 11Q Melchizedek, he uses Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. Here's the text. It is time of the year of Melchizedek and of his armies. Now, Melchizedek in this text is referring to Christ. All right? Referring to Christ and his armies. The nation of the holy ones of God, of the rule of judgment, as it is written about him in the Song of David, who said, God will stand in the assembly of gods in the midst of the gods he judges. So he uses Psalm 82 talking about gods being judged. The very next line says, To his aid shall come all the gods of justice. So there's this battle going on here. you got gods coming to the aid of Christ, who is called here Melchizedek, and the destruction of Belial, and the other spirits are using, the good spirits are redeeming people. All right? All right, let's continue in Psalm 82. So we looked at the first verse. <coughs> God's standing in the divine council. He's judging in the midst of the gods. And then it says this, 2 through 5. How long will you judge unjustly, you gods, and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So these gods are being judged by God for ruling the people unjustly. Now look at Psalm 52. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness. Now again, New Americans, not a good translation here. Let's look at the ESV. Do you indeed decree what is right, O gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? No, in your heart you devise wrong. You see the difference here? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? Or do you judge the children of men uprightly? See, just like Psalm 82, the gods here are being judged for ruling wickedly, unjustly. Now let me stop and ask you a question here. How do these gods end up ruling over the people to start with? I thought God was the ruler. How did they get involved in this? Alright. God put these gods over certain nations. Because he was sick and tired of people. Okay? Listen, as Earth's popula all right, as Earth's population grows, well before it starts growing, he calls Adam, brings Adam into the throne room, into the Garden of Eden, into the presence of the divine council, and the council members aren't too happy about this because hey, what are humans doing in our council? So Satan, one of them, tempts, he falls, he's out of the garden now, we got a problem going on. So Genesis 3 is a problem. Then Genesis 6, the sons of God see the daughters of men are fair. They come down, they intermarry, they have a half-breed population of giants, and you got trouble going on. Well, men can get more and more wicked. They just keep getting worse. And there's men in this time that know Yahweh, that walk with Yahweh, but for the most part, men are just turning away from Him. And it gets to the point, when we get to the Tower of Babel, that they create a ziggurat. They're trying to get God to come down to man. Uh, Genesis 11, 8 and 9 says, Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So everybody's speaking one language until this time. Now God, in a judgment, scatters them all over the place. You know, isn't it amazing how in all these different cultures have similar stories about floods or about whatever? And you're like, how did they all get... Because they all came from the same place. They all spoke the same language. They all knew the same story. And they were spread out as a judgment. Things are in a state of chaos. The rebellion against Yahweh was to the point He just wouldn't take it anymore. They won't follow Him. So He says, I'm done. I'm going to spread you out over the earth and I'm going to take these gods, these 70 gods, and put them over the 70 nations. We see the 70 nations in Genesis 10, the table of nations. 
put a God over each nation. Let them take care of you. We learn more about this in Deuteronomy 32.8. It says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. There we see it. This is Genesis 10. He took these, you know, nations and he gave them their inheritance. When he separated the sons of man, that's Adam, and set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Again, bad translation. The English translation based on the traditional Hebrew text of the Tanakh reads sons of Israel. But this is, there's a variant reading in this passage that's based on the Septuagint and it's based on the manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran and it says sons of God. Now, here is the same passage as it was rendered by Sir Lancelot Brenton in his 1851 translation of the Septuagint into English. He says, When the Most High divided the nations, when He separated the sons of Adam, and set boundaries of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. See, in the Septuagint, the Greek phrase angelon theo is translated angels of God. Now, this interpretive phrase is found in nearly all the extent Septuagint manuscripts. But there's earlier manuscripts that have weon theo, sons of God, instead of angels of God. This is a literal rendering of the Hebrew phrase B'nai Elohim found in the Dead Sea Scrolls of Deuteronomy 32.8. So he's not talking about the sons of Israel because they didn't exist at that time. The Septuagint translators plainly understood that sons of God, B'nai Elohim, spoken in Deuteronomy 32.8 and elsewhere, referred to spirit beings, not men. In Genesis 10, the table of nations, Yahweh divides Noah's descendants into 70 nations. This is recorded in Genesis 10.32. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. Out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So chapter 10 of Genesis is the background for Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 32.8 that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of the nations. In fact, Variations of the same Hebrew word parad, separate, are used in Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32.8. Now the idea that the separation of the 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the angelic sons of God is supported also in the book of Jasser. that says this, And they built a tower in the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before Him, to those who were near him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor, and they did so unto them. Now, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation of the Tower of Babel, it's important to note that Israel's not listed in Genesis 10 in the table of nations because Israel didn't exist at that time. All right? God was just dealing with the people in general. And when he got at the Tower of Babel, he says, I'm done. I can't stand anymore. You won't worship me. I'm done. I'm turning you over to these gods. And he was done with them. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Set the boundaries here. Again, this is, this is not, it's out of context. It just doesn't fit. What happens at Babel is man's disobedience causes him to divide this up and give it to lesser gods. But when he got done with this, when he gave them over to the gods, this nation is this god, this nation is that god, then what's God do? He says, okay, I'm done. I don't even have a people anymore. I gave all my people away to other gods. I know what I'll do. I'll start a new people. Genesis 12, what's he do? He calls Abraham. And Yahweh said to Abraham, go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you And I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. Now the pseudepigrapha says that Abraham knew Yahweh since he was three years old. And I believe that when God called Abraham, he was familiar with Yahweh. He knew Yahweh. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. And so God said, I'm going to take you and we're going to start all over with a whole new nation of people. But it's interesting that in the call of Abraham... One of the things I'm going to do is through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. 
wait, you just got rid of all those nations. Yeah, but I'm going to bless them. I'm going to get them back in again. Commenting on Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, John Walton writes this, These verses are intended to contrast the fact that the Lord has set Israel apart unto Himself from among the nations, and Israel is not numbered with them. The nations have their own gods who are mortal, but they do not have Yahweh who alone does not die and is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. So the point of Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 is that sometimes after God separated the people of the earth, at the Tower of Babel and established on earth where they're going to be located, he assigned these gods to rule over these people. And according to Deuteronomy 4.19, this giving up of the nations was a punitive act. Beware. Now he's talking to Israel here. Beware. Do not lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, moon, stars, and the hosts of heaven. See, they believe that those stars were gods. Now, they weren't just rocks in the sky twinkling. They were gods behind them. That was, that was a manifestation of the gods. Okay, I don't want you to be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Because I'm your God. Those, now watch what he says, those which Yahweh, your God, has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. He's saying to Israel, Israel, listen, don't worship those gods. Why? Those gods belong to the nations. They're supposed to worship them. You're supposed to worship me. And that's why over and over and over through the Bible, he says, Yahweh, the God of Israel. I'm your God. Those gods are for them to worship. Now, we saw earlier the hosts of heaven referred to the sentient, created spiritual beings that reside in the heavens. They've been allotted to the peoples. The word allotted here is halak. And it means literally to apportion, to assign. Yahweh assigned the hosts of heaven to the peoples of the earth, non-Israelites. They have their gods. Israel's got Yahweh as a god. But these gods didn't rule in truth and justice, so Yahweh judged them, and He reclaimed the nations for Himself. Verse 6 of the psalm. Now this is the verse that Yeshua quotes. I said, who's I here? It's Yahweh. I said, you are gods, Elohim, and all of you are sons of the Most High. He's speaking of the gods, he said, you are gods, notice the next verse. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Now, if these Elohim were men, like so many want to contend, what's God threatening with? You men are going to die like men. Well, yeah, that's how men die. But he's telling these gods who had conditional immortality, you're going to die. I'm taking your immortality away and you're going to die. You're a god, but you're going to lose that. They're disobedient. Now watch what Jeremiah says. He says something very similar to this. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish. Oh, Yahweh's not going anywhere, but these gods are going to be judged from the earth and from under the heavens. So we see that in Psalm 82, Yahweh reviewed their performance as gods, and He's condemning them for failing to rule justly. They're supposed to copy the Father. They're supposed to rule in justice and truth, to keep order. Now notice the last verse of the psalm. Now God's not speaking anymore. Now the psalmist speaks out, and He says, Arise! O Elohim, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. So God here is to judge these disobedient gods on the earth. Now the Septuagint, in the Septuagint, the word arise here is anasta in the Greek. It's the term that's used everywhere in the Greek for resurrection. So this is a reference to Yeshua. Resurrect, O Elohim. The resurrected one, he is going to arise and he's going to judge these gods. Now again, if you look at this in the ESV, it says this, Arise, O God, judge your earth, for you shall inherit all nations. When did he inherit all nations? When he arose and judged them. He inherited them all. And that's what happened at Pentecost. What happened? He started bringing all the nations back to himself. 
He did arise, and He judged these gods, and He reclaimed the nations. He took them away from these other gods, brought them back to Himself, starting at Pentecost. So this psalm is all about the judgment of the lesser gods who were ruling the nations unjustly. And you miss it all with the bad translation. But if you keep in mind that Elohim is only used of divine beings, people in the spiritual realm, it'll help you interpret this. Alright? It is in this psalm that Yeshua quotes from in John chapter 10. They've accused Him of blasphemy. You're a man, you say you're God. Then He quotes verse 6. Hasn't He said, you're God's? And next week we're going to look at Yeshua's quote in verse 6 and understand what He meant by it. But I want you to look this text over and compare these two this week. And I want you to keep in mind what Yeshua is doing with this text is defending His deity. Now, if Psalm 82... I'm getting into next week. If Psalm 82 is talking about men, rulers in Israel, then they're saying, you're a man and you make yourself God. And he says, well, hasn't it, didn't God call other men God? So Yeshua saying, well, that's okay, because God calls other men God, so I'm just a man, and yeah, you're right. That's ridiculous. That destroys the whole text. Because the whole point of it is he's saying, I'm not a man, I'm God. All right, next week. I don't want to, I'll keep going. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I realize this is different than the conventional opinion, and I I think the conventional opinion has been swayed by translations. Father, I pray You'd give us the heart of Bereans that we would dig to know. And we want to know because this is what You have revealed. Father, thank You. I thank You that You are sovereign over all. That You rule over all, Lord. And You've called us to be Your children. Thank You, Lord, for the truth of this text. Help us to understand what Yeshua is saying here when He tells them, has it not been said, You are God's. Teach us, Lord, I pray. Amen.